Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, Feeling Film listeners. I'm Aaron, and this is episode two of our new monthly Connecting with Classics series where my co-host Don Shanahan and I have a conversation about one of the films on the American Film Institute's Top 100 10th Anniversary list. Don and I wanted this to be a participatory experience while also encouraging you all to watch more classic films, so we will be giving out cool stuff at the end of the year to those who write and share reviews of the film or come and comment about the film and discuss it with us in the Feel and Film Facebook group. These interactions will earn you entries into the end-of-the-year prize drawing for podcast swag and hopefully some extra cool stuff, too. For listeners who don't wish to be a part of this amazing Facebook discussion group, you can also email your reviews to us at feelandfilm at gmail.com. We will accept it that way. So, Don from Every Movie Has a Lesson is here again. Hey there, folks. How you doing? Happy Valentine's Day or post-Singles Awareness Day, whatever way you describe this holiday to be. But we also have a third guest host joining us. Josh from the LSG Media Science Fiction Film Podcast is here for this talk on what was one of his favorite movies as well. Welcome, Josh. It is nice to finally have you on the show. Hey, Aaron, Don, uh, and listeners, thanks so much, uh, guys, for having me on. I am uh, super excited to talk about this movie and uh, really excited to get a chance to be on your show. Before we go, I, I do want to mention, so listeners, the Science Fiction Film Podcast is one of the early influences uh, for me. It was one of the first podcasts that I really fell in love with. Josh is one of three I guess we could say four main co-hosts if we want to count Jessica and uh, we probably should. <laughs> and uh, they are an awesome show. They don't just cover science fiction films either, but it's a very unique format. Um, that's definitely adult, but it's a lot of fun. And so I highly recommend you check out their stuff. LSG media, the stuff that Josh does, they actually have a whole slew of podcasts now. I mean, they're basically an empire And the guy who kind of runs it all, Dean, is one of my early mentors. So um, that's how I got to know Josh through that podcast and interaction being in his Facebook group. And then he kind of got involved in ours. And that's the connection there. And I hope everyone will definitely check out your podcast as well. Cool. Thank you. Well, gosh, now it sounds like I have to, like, get a podcast to keep up here. Uh, in the me, I don't, I, I'm happy just hopping on this one. So, uh, all right, listeners, you may be wondering why we chose Casablanca this month, or maybe it's pretty obvious. Well, like I mentioned before, Valentine's Day just passed, and what better film to capture that celebration of romance like one of the greatest love stories ever told? Casablanca checks in at number three. Number three on the AFI Top 100 10th Anniversary List. This is definitely a beloved classic, and I know I'm excited to talk about it, and I hope you are too. But first, a little reminder and also a little note. Um, I was lucky enough on this little re-trip here a little bit. I watched this film probably once a year. Um, I turned on the DVD, uh, the Blu-ray commentary for this uh, done by Roger Ebert. I know it was recorded about 10 years ago before he obviously he passed and also before he lost his ability to speak. And he defines a classic as, and I think it completely applies to where we're going to go with our conversation today, as, quote, a movie that I couldn't bear the thought of never seeing again. And a movie, quote, doesn't get old or worn down with the effect on me. And I think we've got one here that is 
easily um, a classic for all of us to take care of. And just to say it out loud, for those of you who haven't seen it or are seeing it for the first time, uh, spoiler warning is out. We are a podcast that is best listened to after you see the film. So turn us off now, come back later, and you will enjoy our conversation about Casablanca. I thought you were about to use the M word for a second there, Don. You know, um, well, yeah, this is a masterpiece. Come on, it has oh. to be. I, you know, I, I, you know, for all those feeling filmers out there who are like, he'll never use the word. Of course, I can use the word. I'm a big boy. I could do it. It just, it just has to apply and it has to work. Um, the tricky thing is, and we're going to talk about this as we go. My normal definition of masterpiece is something reasonably singular or small for a particular filmmaker, and this is kind of hard because Michael Curtiz has made about 130 films, and he's made films equally as you know, up there in their genre and their department is, is Casablanca. But I'm pretty sure this one wins just about every vote of what's going to be a masterpiece. So, yes, we are talking about a classic and we are talking about a masterpiece. Awesome. I'm so glad that we have this recorded. So you can't uh, can't yes. take that away. It yes. has been said and it is, yep. a, a, it is the in the public record. OK, well, we want to start by kind of laying the groundwork here and talking about a little bit of history and why this film is a classic. I don't know. If everyone knows this, I'm assuming that the two of you do, but our listeners may not. Casablanca is actually based on a screenplay, or I'm sorry, a stage play. It was called Everybody Comes to Rick's, and it was bought by Warner Brothers for a record $20,000 at the time, uh, which is the equivalent of about $350,000 in 2017. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to me. I feel like screenplays probably go for a lot more than $350,000 uh, these days. I'm not sure. Don, do you know? Yeah, I, you know, when you see like a spec script for $350,000, I, I think that's low end for today's money. I mean, it's still pretty um, – I call that pretty good. I mean, if you're a screenwriter and, and you get a $350,000 check, that ain't bad. I know um, – I think I don't see a lot of numbers in that department. I know the, the numbers I always think of are like how much a distributor will buy a film after Sundance, and that's like, you know – bidding war for millions of dollars so i'd say 350 is a pretty nice chunk of change awesome well the this one was obviously sought after at the time um, warner brothers scooped it up another note is that the inclusion of the song as time goes by very iconic and key to this film came from the play um, that song, which was uh, from 1931, had been Burnett's favorite when he was a student at Cornell. And so he put that into his stage play when he was writing it, and then they ended up keeping it as part of the film. So pretty cool little nugget of history there that this is based on a stage play. I actually want to seek it out and read it at some point. I have not done so yet, though. All right. Uh, Casablanca, as you might assume, took down some awards. Um, it took uh, the best three, one best picture, best director uh, for Michael Curtis, best screenplay, Julius and Philip Epstein and Howard Koch, um, and had five other nominations, including best actor, supporting actor, which was uh, Claude Rains, cinematography, film editing, and score. Um, and just uh, we'll talk about the setting as we get into the movie, but it's kind of an interesting historical note that some people probably know, it, you know, came out in 1942, but really think about that. It was released, it was in production and released just as America was entering World War II. And it really is, is pretty fascinating to think about that in the in the mindset of a contemporary audience. I actually read that the uh, the analyst at studio that first uh, read the, the outline of it 
got it across his desk December 8th, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Um, it came into production about six months later. So uh, just a pretty fascinating historical context on that. Um, to go a little further, let's talk about the director, Michael Curtis. And um, Michael Curtis was a, uh, a Hungarian immigrant coming to Hollywood. I began making films in 1912, and he left Hungary in 1919. Um, like most people at, during that time, he left during the political unrest of World War I, and he became an extremely prolific filmmaker, uh, mostly at Warner Brothers. Um, and um, Jack Warner kind of is the guy who brought him in, and over the course of his career, he made over 100 films. And the range of this man is ridiculous. So in addition to Casablanca, he did swashbuckling films like Captain Blood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, which was Errol Flynn's huge hit. He's got um, The Seawolf, which would kind of continue a little more Errol Flynn. Then he did Mildred Pierce. Then he also went on to do musicals like Yankee Doodle Dandy, This is the Army, and White Christmas. Um, and then he made comedies like Life with Father and We're No Angels. So um, for a guy who made over 100 films, he's got quite the resume and quite the um, – I, I don't want to say curriculum of which you can do, but I'm, I know we were joking a little bit earlier in the year We in January, us and the Feeling Film Group we were trying to find, like, uh, can we watch, like, a director's filmography in the course of a year? And I'm like, ooh, Casablanca, I'll pick Michael Curtis, not realizing the depth of this man's <laughs> history. I'm like, I can't watch 130 films. Most of them are undistributed and from the, the aughts and teens. I'm not going to find that stuff, but. Um, fun story about him is um, as a Hungarian immigrant, he never mastered the English language, uh, which was kind of a, a sticking point and kind of a hard thing for any cast and crew who worked with him because he kind of had a bit of a, a bit of a mean streak and some stubbornness because it was always the a language barrier and screwed up mistakes and miscommunications and signals. So um, his cast members and crew members affectionately called those kind of moments uh criticisms and part of um part of the making of casablanca you know they feel like it's kind of sober and pedestrian because you know they're like putting up with this grumpy director yet here we go looking at this classic where you feel like oh gosh a classic like this has to have everyone knowing it every time they do it and and being into the scenes but there's plenty of scenes where behind the scenes they're like oh can we just get through this take so this film was uh casablanca was filmed in the period of less than three months uh, the actors didn't like each other, the director, and the screen. The screenwriters reworked a whole bunch of the script on the fly. I heard a lot about this in the commentary I listened to last night from Ebert where he really broke down kind of who was the, the hero and the heroine of this film behind the scenes. And it, it seems like it was more producers than, than screenwriters than anything. Yeah, that's a, it, it is pretty fascinating. I didn't know any of that stuff until this most recent viewing and a little bit of research as well, kind of finding out how how shocking it is that this movie actually made it to be honest like it it almost didn't so we maybe not had Casablanca uh, I'll, I'll name drop kind of the hero here the name uh, the guy, the name I was looking for it was mentioned quite prominently in the commentary I watched last night was producer Hal B. Wallace was the guy who really shepherded this film from not being forgotten not being a failure not you know getting off the ground you know because he was the guy who purchased the film rights and really was in love with the play no matter what the the screenwriters were kind of tinkering with and screwing around with he kept it at its core the whole time he brought in bogart and it was pretty solid thanks to the producer halby wallace yeah and they they didn't even know what the, how the movie was going to end if i recall they they were rewriting constantly as it was progressing and changing up the story as they went it was kind of like they were feeling out the characters literally as they were filming the characters themselves or the actors themselves had no idea how it was going to end 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know it's it, the stuff that we're hearing about like that has become the stuff of Hollywood legend. And I know you're going to talk a little bit later about I think about censorship and how a lot of this film had to kind of skirt, you know, because um, we're talking about relationship out of wedlock. We're talking about former romances and suggestions of you know sexual relationships that might have been possible. But of course, the censors back then are not going to put that on screen. And so there's a lot of little subtle places where this film could have got sunk by rewrites or different expectations and, and it's nice to see it kind of i don't know survive and be here it, it really is kind of a uh, not i can't say a happy accident because you you have this film that 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 worked and, and was purposeful but at the same time it was just meant to be another you know um run-of-the-mill studio product you know kind of a, a tweener film it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a blockbuster it wasn't a benchmark it wasn't like a high position film for award season or anything like that all right, so let's get into it then. Josh, as the newbie here, um, we'll ask you. I know, because I've talked to you, how much this film means to you. Tell us about your first viewing. Like, how did you discover Casablanca? So I came across Casablanca too early, to be honest, for me to uh, appreciate it the first time around for sure. Uh, growing up, I was a big history nerd, especially World War II. Um, I loved everything about that. I, I read books about it. I watched movies. I watched old black and whites. I watched TV show, history channel. I played video games about World War II, anything I could, board games. Um, <clears throat> so somebody, an older relative of mine, mentioned, uh, oh, you like World War II. You should watch this movie, Casablanca. It's on, you know, TCM or something like that. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I sat there. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And, uh, Got mildly excited from time to time when, like, oh, here come the Germans, and here's a flashback to Paris. Rick is going to be fighting in the streets of Paris. And come to find out, first time around, didn't do quite as much for me. I, I was looking for a little bit more uh, of a shallow take. I still love the historical perspective. I thought it was really fascinating, even at that point, the especially the kind of neutral ground of, of Casablanca, this Vichy France-occupied territory, um, was neat to me. But it fell away from me, and I probably don't think I rewatched it's in its entirety until probably after I got out of college and um, older, wiser, a little bit, at least to some extent. Um, also had been through a few heartbreaks myself by that point. Um, so the rom romance, romantic elements really shown through in a different sense. The the loss that Rick feels, this, this rekindling, um, the hope, the eventual kind of gamut of emotions it runs through. Um, and then on top of it, still loving the setting, loving the intrigue, loving these other characters. And the more time has gone along and the more I've come to appreciate, I guess, film as, as a thing more than just movies are fun to watch, the more and more I appreciate this. And at this point, I would say the last few years, I have to have watched this three, four times a year. Um, I would say crack the top five for me in the last few years. And uh, our previous conversation, when uh, I saw it on the big screen, just by complete happenstance, I saw it was on a screening for 75th anniversary. Um, I walked out of that and I said, I think this is my favorite movie of all time. It's awesome. That's high praise. Definitely high praise. Don, what about you? How was you? Um, uh, how'd you come? I was, 
I was lucky to see it in college. Um, I first started kind of really researching what was kind of the best of the best back when I was kind of um, that fledgling kind of college newspaper movie critic and journalist guy. And I worked at, I was that dork who worked at a video store. Um, but at the same time, my background was I was a country kid, a uh, gravel farm kid where I never had cable TV. Uh, until college, so I had whatever your you know over the air basic stations where I didn't get to see, I didn't get to see movies. Like if I saw a movie on television, it was The Ten Commandments on Palm Sunday, and that was it. So unless I went out to see the movies, which was plenty and fine, um, I never saw classic films. I had this big gap of things I never saw. So when I discovered Turner Classic Movie Channel in college, I was hooked. Um, and I got to Casablanca kind of through farming the highlights of uh, Humphrey Bogart. Um, I, um, I think the first Humphrey Bogart film I saw was Dark Passage, which I, I, I still love because it's kind of my first kind of tingly Bogart fun film. And um, uh, when I when I kind of did my homework, that you know Casablanca was the one that screamed as the the one. So um, when I when I finally got to see it, I was amazed on just the first viewing, and, and it's only it was instantly the best thing I've ever seen, and it's only resonated more since. Um, it's my all time number one film um, on both lists that I kind of do because I have to wear that press credential film critic hat so i make lists that are quote-unquote best and then i make lists that are just for me that are you know your typical favorites and it's number one on both because it's um i'm one of those guys that just has to had occupational hazard has to kind of define both and uh this movie has it all from a favorite standpoint because of like you said the emotionality the topicality but then also as a critic it just checks so many boxes of perfection and yeah, so so college and through Bogart is how I got there. Aaron, what about you? Well, interestingly enough, you guys are both a huge part of my personal Casablanca journey. So that's pretty neat that I get to talk to you both about it. Um, my first viewing was actually last year. So it was in early 2017. And it came because I saw you, Don, reference it as your favorite film. And that was at a time when I was still just completely over the moon about La La Land. Not that I'm not over the moon about La La Land now. I still am. But I was pretty obsessive. And I was kind of eating it all up. I wanted to go out and take in all of the references. So anything that Damien Chazelle used as a reference in that film, I wanted to go see. Well, come to find out. Casablanca is a pretty huge one once you get to the ending and you realize kind of the comparison and of how it relates to La La Land. So I watched this and then actually watched this and American in Paris back to back. It was a great day for me. Really enjoyed both of them. But this one just stunned me. I I was emotionally blown away. I'm a very emotional creature. And Josh, like you referenced specifically, like after a couple of heartbreaks, being able to relate to this film becomes a lot easier and it's, it's just so raw in the emotion that it puts you through. Uh, and I resonated with that big time after that. It was in November, I believe just like you were talking about Josh. Um, when you posted in the feeling film Facebook group, you, you, you had a screenshot of the Fandango screen times for that 75th anniversary showing. And I remember you posted and you were like, hey, is anybody else going to see this? I happened to be working from home that day. I saw that post and I said immediately to myself, new plan. I stopped what I was doing, literally booked a ticket within minutes of seeing that post and finished up my work and got in the car and drove an hour to a theater and watched it that day on the big screen. I'm so glad I did because it was elevated even further for me. 
with that viewing is just there was something completely glorious about seeing it on the big screen and where I really resonated emotionally with it that first time I kind of appreciated it for its film greatness that second time it was the lighting and the shadows and all those things that really are amplified by a big screen viewing and they came out for me in a huge way and I just I, I fell in love with it I immediately decided it it has to be in my top 10 of all time. I don't know where it's going to eventually land for me, but it it is probably the only film that has the potential to go all the way to my number 1. I mean, I'm I'm a Lord of the Rings trilogy guy. I cheat. I call it my number 1 even though it's three films, whatever. I don't care. Um don't at me. But uh well, do at me. I don't care. I'll I'll, I'll fight you over that. But I this one is just it's so special to me, I think, uh, on a personal level, and it's probably a lot in the script. Um, I know it did win that best um, screenplay Oscar Josh mentioned earlier, and for me, it might be the perfect script. I, I do not feel that there is a weak or th- wasted piece of dialogue in this movie. I think it all works, and I'm big on writing. So you put all those pieces together and yeah, this one, this one is definitely a masterpiece to me as well, man. That's awesome that uh, I know I, I, I was also lucky enough to see it on the big screen five years earlier when it was its 70th anniversary. And I'm with you both, all three, both of you where this on the big screen just pops and it's not because it's a blockbuster. It's not because it's big and showy. It's just the emotions and the smoothness of the film just encapsulates you because you're in the big screen. You're in the you're in the sound. You hear the the changes of voice, those chords of music, the the chanting and the singing in the Marseille scene. So, I just all of it resonates. And you and you when you when you watch it on the big screen, you I couldn't help but like pretend, I, I tried to project like what would that have been like in its heyday seeing that during an act of war during a place where they didn't know the ending of what was going to happen so that i was just you know like i i just can't stop step stepping back and looking at what that film is and for its time and go gosh what an amazing thing because i can't think of in my lifetime um you know if you want to call it a war film that that speaks about the war or speaks about the people in that kind of way that's you know, I don't know what I'm, what I'm going to try to say that just um, that in the moment, because we don't know how this is going to end or at the, at the time, like they don't know what it was going to happen in World War Two. For if if we get beat by the Nazis, that film looks like the the wishiest, washiest, hope is, you know, hopeful thing in the world. Yet here we are winning things later. And it's just the resonance. I, I know I'm rambling, but it's it's just so good. Yeah. And, th- and things for that historical perspective, things did not look good as this film was in production in 1942 from the allied perspective um midway hadn't happened yet uh stalingrad hadn't happened so looking back the the last couple of years when the axis were really on the retreat th- this movie came out before all of that so you're absolutely right don audiences and theaters were sitting there watching this and must have been hoping looking at this like you know like we in america really was so much like rick america had been so resistant to to getting involved and granted it's a little different rick had had previously been involved to some extent but you know america had been dragged kicking and screaming into this conflict that all of a sudden 
isn't really looking very good. Um, and I just can, I would give anything to have that perspective to, to be a fly on the wall, you know, opening night when, uh, p- audiences were walking out of theater and what they were saying to each other. Just, it's fascinating beyond just the, the film perspective, um, the history of it really. Yeah. One of the things that stuck out to me in this most recent viewing is actually the beginning of the film. I mean, I think people quickly remember all of the famous lines, all of the love story, the Rick and Ilsa and who's she going to choose. And of course the ending, but the opening of this movie is really cool. The way it sets up that background in the history, you know, and it's, it's almost got this fairy tale like quality to it. Um, and it also reminds me of, for some reason, every time I see the globe and it's spinning around and like going down into Casablanca, I, I think of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, that, that scene where they like show the plane driving around or flying around. But it's maybe that's a callback to that. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I just I really love how they set it up and they kind of give us little snippets. And one of the brilliant pieces of this script is in those scenes, in those moments, like it never tells us they never, they don't use exposition to just say Rick's is a shady place where all of these terrible things go down. Like we, we get a quick shot of of a conversation between two people who are trying to make a deal for diamonds. And we get these little pieces of actual slices of life. And that's how we learn what is going on, what takes place at Rick's. And we learn through seeing what the characters do. We learn through, you know, Captain Renault, and, and when he comes in, we learn how he acts and how he has to deal with the Nazis instead of just him kind of telling us about it, which too many films do, in my opinion. And so I really enjoyed the setup this time around and, and kind of how it staged Casablanca, because for some reason, the first two, I will admit, I was so latched on to the love story that it was almost like the movie didn't start until Ilsa shows up at Rick's. Uh, yeah, I was really uh, – one. I think one of the things that ties that script together to keep it lean the way you're talking about where it's light on exposition, heavy on suggestion is the – kind of that comic irony that's always in place in this whole thing. So I think that's one of the strongest traits is, like you said, lines of dialogue and great dialogue that we remember is combined with really masterful performances from the actors to put – tone and inflection and just position into the way they say whatever their dialogue is the very minimalistic dialogue and then the fun part is how funny this film is i never realized how humorous this film was until i watched it with an audience because when i first saw it it was you know on a on a vhs tape in my dorm room or on turner classic movies i'm an audience of one but when i watched it on the big screen with a with a captive audience of people we kept I kept realizing just how good, you know, Claude Rains and Sydney Greenstreet are because the comic irony that takes all this, you know, unknown mystery of the war effort and and the intrigue and 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 makes light of it enough to give it give this film kind of a kick and a pace of, of comic timing. I, it's really, really, really something. There is a lot more humor, I think, that it gets credit for. And on top of that, kind of going off what you're saying, Aaron, something I was I was really appreciating this this watch through is. You know, it's not just not only is it not just the love story, it's really it's not just Rick and Ilsa's story. And beyond the setting, you know, really appreciating all these characters. I mean, obviously, Claude Rains kind of crushes it as the the sporting actor. Captain Renault is he is so good. I mean, he's such a perfect, you know, corrupt 
political, you know, he's just this this creature living in the environment that he has to live in and doing what it takes. If he can get something for himself, he'll do it. If everything's the stars align and maybe he can do something that he actually cares about, maybe that will come up now and then. But um, beyond uh, Renault, I mean, the, the other guys, Ferrari, as you mentioned, Don, and, and even, you know, the bartender, Sasha, these guys we get little glimpses of, they, they just shine so well in their little spots. And, you know, it really dances all around this, this central piece between um, – you know, our, our two mains there, but I, I really love, you know, obviously it's nothing close to an ensemble cast, but the ensemble of, of supporting uh, characters, I think are, are, are kind of underrated. Um, and it's, it's fun to kind of focus on them now and then um, when you're going back and watching it after you get past that, that impact of those early viewings, like you were talking about, Aaron. Yeah. I tell you what, um, Ebert said something about it in the commentary that I watched last night where um, I think it's like, um, 85% of the cast of this film is international, and yet it's this American film because most of those background players and, 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 and you know people like Sasha, people like Sydney Greenstreet, uh, or the next layer of people down from them in the, like you said, light ensemble. It's not a super-duper star-studded ensemble. They're all um, – refugees pretty much that have come over you know because again this is like you said is this is the early effort of the war america just got into it but all these you know people kind of came over from hungary from uh romania and all these different places to come over and, and kind of get work in hollywood so like they say like um for example the croupier at the roulette table was one of like France's top actors at the time, and the best he could do coming over to America because of the war effort was was getting parts like a croupier in Casablanca. Yet, you know, if he were to go back over to France, he'd be like Jean Desjardins today, where he's like this superstar. But back then, it was you know still studio system. It was still kind of you know it, I'm not saying it was you know racism or anything like that, but it was it was hard for some of these folks to get work yet here's this perfect picture for them to all kind of come in and they found this very warm blanket of a film that wanted international flavor and it was very complimentary that all those people got to have those chances in those moments in this film yeah that i completely agree and i i love all the performances um it, it's funny because paul heinrad or heinrad i don't know how you say his last name um who plays laszlo actually was upset. He didn't want to be there and he, he didn't enjoy the filming. He's one of the ones that we referenced earlier that w was causing problems on set to, to an extent because he didn't, he didn't, he was a star actor and he thought that he should be Rick when he was brought in and he didn't realize in the moment, the importance of Laszlo, right? I mean, Laszlo is the one who everybody sacrifices for in, in the end, I mean, it's Laszlo who is the important figure here. Like he's the key cog that that needs to go forward, um, whose story needs to continue. And Heinrich didn't realize that, um, but yet he still gives a, a fantastic performance. And I kind of I love hearing stories like that because it reminds us that that these are these are actors, and being an actor, it's a job, right? Like it's going to work. We go to work every day. Don, you're a school teacher. You don't love your job every day, but you can't take that out on the kids, right? Or maybe you do. I don't know. But uh, I, I'm assuming. I, I have a T-shirt that says negative reinforcement is still reinforcement. <laughs> Just saying. Um, but but yes, I mean, you cannot love your job every day and still be an an expert and do a fantastic piece of work. And that's what he did. 
Um, and of course, it, as it turns out, that part becomes much more important than he ever realized that it could have been. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy the cast here, um, even just like small parts like Ugarte. I, I just I love him. I love Peter Laurie in that moment. I wish I almost wish he was there longer, you know, because he's he's so rich as a, mm-hmm. as a performance. Like he's just it's delicious. I just like, ah, oh, man, it's it's wonderful. Well, let's go to another delicious quality, and I know you kind of had a, a, a spike to want to talk about this. So let's go to a technical spot. Let's talk about um, lighting and cinematography because this is kind of pre-noir, yet here we are playing with those tones and those looks. Tell us about the shadows and cinematography, Aaron. Well, I'm not an expert here, but I can tell you that it's obvious enough it stands out to me, which I feel like as a – I mean, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm a film critic, but I'm not in a traditional learned film critic. I didn't go to film school, but I notice the shadows and the cinematography in this in a big way, in a way that in fact, with most black and white films, I never have specifically at the beginning of the film. It's, it's like Rick is moving in and out of hard shadows and he's, he's very often in a frame by himself. To me, it it exemplifies this quality he has that he is concealing his broken heart. He's an isolationist. Um, and of course, that's kind of both politically and emotionally at this point. But then once we go to the flashback in Paris, everything kind of lightens up. The screen gets brighter. It gets whiter. It's more glowy, obviously symbolizing a happy time in his life. And it's it's a softer light. And it kind of continues from there and it's like that happens because of ilsa when she's around you'll notice that the shadows change there's this light that comes with her um and by the end it's it just works perfectly because when they say goodbye they walk off into this milky fog and and it's very memorable to me because i've tried to get like a good screenshot of it or a gif to use that walking away scene and it's so milky that it doesn't make a good screenshot you know it looks great on the it looks great when you're watching it on the movie but to try and recreate it it doesn't it doesn't work as well and there they go off into this haze this kind of unknown this muddy poss- muddy future um, for Rick and Renault. And so I really love the lighting in this. And I feel like more than anything, it works along with Rick's story arc to kind of show that transition from cynic to self-sacrificing patriot. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think your analysis is spot on there where I, you know, I got to think it was very intentional the way they just the different angles. And, and then you hear sometimes like the technical parts where Ingrid Bergman is five foot seven and, and, and Bogart's like five, five. She's, you know, two, two and a half inches taller than him, where you when you start doing framings and setups at the same time, you're trying to do shadow and mood. It's it's I, I can't imagine how complicated that would be and then you're trying to get those orders barked to you from a hungarian director you can't understand so uh, you know it's amazing that it all really falls into place in such a smooth way and uh, equally challenging in, in whether it's smooth or uncertain or the shifts of things let's talk about this love story well i had a question for you guys and i know josh i'll, I'll just throw this to you first um this is considered to be one of the greatest love stories ever told so What's your take on that? Like, why why do we consider it that? Or is it? I, I think it is because it's not 
because it ends in a way that I think has a little bit of a more realistic edge. Um, I think when you when you pull yourself back, not from the in theater experience, when you when you go back and you look at it, not just as a film, but as what is the story of these three characters? You have a true happy relationship. Um, a, a marriage, a true, you know, connection from an early age between two people in, you know, Ilsa and Laszlo that become separated. Life does crazy things and life continues to do crazy things as he's sent from place to place, possibly gone forever, maybe dead. Um, whether that's true or not, that you actually believe that she's caught up in this incredible um and I don't mean in a good way, this incredible experience of, of, of the Germans marching through Europe and has this, you know, sordid affair, essentially, with, with this American Rick, this charming, um, you know, experienced, worldly um, man that she meets. And it's it's quick. And the whole time, you know, in the, in the flashbacks, you still see she knows. She knows the whole time it, it can't last. It can't go on it has to end um he doesn't and then they have a very different perspective on that and when they reconnect um and this this whole experience in casablanca you know what's really happening is is rick coming to terms with with what that relationship was um and i there's some stuff i kind of want to say for our uh, some of our kind of final thoughts takeaway lessons on on rick's choices at the end and and what that means for him, and, and sort of what that can mean for us. But, but I think it is it is a a beautiful and wonderful love story because it's not just the love story. It's not the everything ends happily after ever after because usually it doesn't. And if it does, you know, it's usually not in the way you thought it would or with the person you first thought it would. Um, so yes, I do think ultimately this is one of the greatest love stories ever told in that it is a story where love ties through it. I do not think to say that is not to say that Rick and Ilsa are one of the best love stories ever told. Casablanca is one of the best love stories ever told. Fantastic point. Yeah, nicely done. Yeah, so for me, I, I, I definitely agree 100%. It's it's not Rick and Ilsa. They're not on the couples list when you see those memes or polls go around and you say, who are the best movie couple? You know, that's not the two that I'm going to go to um, because it's, it's more than just about their relationship. Um, it's about that journey that Rick takes. And in many ways, I think it's also about the fact that Laszlo is a – genuinely good person. So this is this movie puts us in a position where we almost are forced to choose or it encourages us to at least have that conflict in our minds as we're watching. You can't you want to root for Rick. Like that's the natural movie thing to do. But then you get so much of Laszlo and you realize like this guy's amazing. This is a revolutionary leader. He's done nothing wrong. He treats his wife with respect. He trusts her. That scene really stuck out to me this time, by the way. Got me pretty emotional, to be honest, where he's talking to her and she's about to go see Rick. And he says something to the effect of, I don't need you to say it. I believe you. And just lets her go. And it's like, like this guy is really the guy that we should kind of aspire to be like. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we probably would say Ilsa is in a better 
scenario, like she's in a better place if she and if she stays with the man that she's married to, um, as a husband and as a person. So, I I love that that conflict exists and it's not simple. Again, just a reference, like that's one of the things I love about La La Land and the the ending of La La Land is that we we get to think about that. You know, like yeah, there's a part of me that wants to root for that kind of romantic fling, but there's a part that is very respectful of two people that can go through that and end up stronger together because of it. Um, and I think there's also an element here of, you know, Rick realizing that, um, and then a friendship for me, uh, man, I don't know about you guys, but like the Renault and Rick friendship, when you, once you get to the end of this movie for the first time and they walk off into the, not to the sunset, I guess into the fog together to the crate unknown, it is so much more fun to watch, you know, from the beginning forward and see their relationship play out. So good. Yeah, for me with the romance, the common thread is um, selflessness. Because this is very much of a, a woulda, coulda, shoulda situation for lots of our characters. It's the – for Rick, it's what could have been if I was still with Ilsa. For Ilsa, is what would it be like if, if – if um, if I was with Rick and now with my husband and and all the woulda coulda shouldas turn into this poor turn into the the impetus or the initiative for selflessness because in order to truly love you have to kind of, at least for these characters in this film they have to give of themselves like and you say in in some of your notes here just the sacrifice like at what point will they change themselves for their partner. And like you said, with the way that um, uh, Ilsa's husband really just respects her and, and gets to that level. And then what Ilsa gives in return to stand by her man at the same time as we see Rick get to his, you know, his obviously his crescendo point of letting her go. That takes selflessness to know that even 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 with love, you can't always have it and you have to let it go and it's as crushing as it is it, it you know we we learn as much we learn as much about how to love from the ones that get away than the ones we still have and i think that's and, and to do that in such a tidy little you know small little hollywood movie that turned into this thing is it's it's endlessly impressive i was just going to piggyback off off something you said uh earlier just about about rick and captain Renault. they are such an awesome couple as it were you know as, as in a, just a duo and when you go back and you watch it the the cool thing is really from the beginning of the film Renault is really rick's only peer the only person he treats as a true equal and i don't mean that in a judgmental sense but everybody else is kind of on a different relationship a, a lot of people work for him there's people that you know ugarte that he you know tolerates but he doesn't trust he doesn't like past a certain point even sam you know there's there's obviously a deep relationship there but but sam you know he literally works for him and he's not you know rick has obviously the one that has kind of gotten them to this point brought them here opened this thing um he and captain renault even though they are at times some more so than others uh sort of antagonists uh, at part of this they there's a respect there there's this mutual thing from the beginning of these are two people that are doing what they have to do in the situation they're put in with all the tools they've naturally been given. And that relationship runs right through it. And it's really neat. And it's 
it's why it's so rewarding at the end of the film to watch them walk off into that fog together. Yeah, I agree. And and about that ending. So I really did hesitate to mention this, Don. I know you you briefly talked about that censorship earlier. Um, what, um, my fear is that knowing these kind of facts about the history of the film can potentially change a viewer's reaction to it. And I, and I'm hoping that's not the case, but I'm going to mention it anyway. So, you know, if you really don't want to know the history about this, I guess just turn us off for the next five minutes or so. But the thing is that during the time of Casablanca, there was this thing called the Hayes code and it was a major censorship of how films got made and specifically depictions of what the Hayes code would view as immoral sex. So these censors actually objected to several aspects of Casablanca, including that Captain Renault solicited sexual favors from the women to whom he gave visas. When it came to what transpired between Rick and Ilsa in the apartment, um, the censor, whose name was Joseph Ignatius Breen, was very clear about what he saw in the script. And he said that he detected an implication of a sex affair and that that would be unacceptable if it comes through the finished picture. So ultimately... The filmmakers had to remove that implication of a sex affair by not showing a bed or a couch um, and then thus not giving us it became more ambiguous as to what happens in that apartment, which I'm very glad, actually, because I love the ambiguity of that scene. But that actually extends even further to the ending, because in the end, if Ilsa had stayed with Rick, she would have been committing to an affair away from her husband. And it's very likely that the censors would never have let that go. So in a sense, they were forced into this ending. Does that bother, not bother, does it change anything about the ending for you guys, knowing that it kind of had to be that way at the time? I mean, I'll chime in first and say that um, I'll kind of, you kind of hinted at this already a little bit where I love the ambiguity because, and I and I'm kind of glad that the ambiguity was, in hindsight, I'm glad the ambiguity was kind of forced by the censors because like we were saying earlier with exposition, then all of this isn't so clear. There's such a huge gray area in the way that this romance could be um, construed or portrayed where because there's so much mystery to it and because there's so much that's unsaid, I think that only – in a silver lining kind of way, only adds to the power of the will they or won't they romance. Um, and I know I'll, I'll even kind of chime in where Ebert was going um, – you know, there's this kind of legend that says that Ingrid Bergman, I mean, they didn't know the script, obviously. And and that's kind of a true part of the legend where they were, were working on the script all the way all the way to the end. But there was a part of that legend has kind of extended to be that Ingrid Bergman didn't know who she was going to end up with until the scene was shot when visas are handed out and you're going to get on that plane. And that is a little bit of a. Ebert says it's kind of a bit of an overreach because Ingrid Bergman, because of the censorship that was so apparent, would have to know that there was no way they were going to have this movie where she goes with Rick. Like she she had to know that the only way this was going to end, even though they can play for some back and forth a little bit, was that she was going to go with with Victor. And so I don't know. To me, that doesn't take away an ounce of the mystique. It doesn't take away a, oh, well, they could have, they should have did or shown more. I think this is a great case where less is more and the ambiguity only adds to the, to the appeal to it. Josh, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm of the sense that 
I like behind the film stuff, making of, you know, I think it's interesting. But when it's a movie I love, I, you know, I don't want to see how my sausage is made if I really love that sausage. And so something like this, you know, Aaron, you can bring it up. I kind of let it go in one ear out the other because this is a special movie for me. And all I care about is, is the experience I have when, when I'm watching it. Like, I don't care that the stupid mechanical shark wasn't working, and that's why we don't see that much of the shark. That's why Jaws is perfect. Who cares that that's how it happened, you know? And uh, maybe it's the same thing, but what matters is, is really the end result. I think yeah. the weird thing I wonder a little bit is because um, we're in this cycle of Hollywood where we're getting so many remakes, and I and I, a lot of people when they ask, you know when people say hey what movie should never be remade I go I go Casablanca because it's my number one so if this movie were to be made to remade today you know they would wouldn't have these censors they wouldn't have these boundaries and I think anybody who would remake it would instantly overdo it they somebody would be overacting to be Captain Renault they would sexually charge this movie just to give it a little more sizzle and edge for today's audience like they couldn't remake this movie with anywhere near the same charm and effect that they that the original had I don't know what you think Aaron well that's again I go back to my La La Land comparison because in La La Land we don't see any sex it's one of the things that I specifically point out to people all the time there is none like there's a mild implication because they live in a house together and they there's one bed there but that's as sexual of a relationship as we see between our two leads in that entire film and it kind of compares to this one in that one person is is married in the end and we know that they have a perfect life set up for them and it's a matter of hey are you going to go with the history, the, the, the affair? Are you going to go with the, the romantic fling that you had, the feelings, or are you going to stick with the commitment? Um, and so I feel like it's a very similar situation, and I, I love it. I agree 100%. There's no way the sensibility of this comes through in this day and age. Yeah, great I, comment. I think, that, I think that even if the ending remained the same in a remake, they would, like you said, they would find some way to spice it up. There wouldn't be ambiguity in that that bedroom or that uh, apartment scene. We would be definitively know what did or didn't take place, and we and I'm sure what took place, right? Um, <laughs> is probably some bogey and Bergman getting it on. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead then and transition now into the kind of segments that we have, we, where we talk about the feel and film connecting point, and the every movie has a lesson. Uh, takeaway. So let's do connecting points first. Don, we want to kick us off. Yeah, absolutely. I've, um, I'm going first because my connecting point is early in the film, and and it's it's the hammer, and I love it. Um, for me, uh, an emotional sword ran through me during the collision scene of when Rick and Elsa are seeing each other again for the first time. So when Rick hears that song as time goes by, and he marches over and he berates Sam for playing it, and then he sees Elsa and bang the orchestrational music cue telegraphs the presence of the change of emotion and it freezes the moment of locked eyes like the music does the talking sam's bilingual to get out of there does the talking and just the way they look at each other says volumes and we don't even know what those volumes are yet but it's such a stunner of a moment and 
Bogart sells it like a million bucks. Um, Bergman sells it with just the way that she dotes. You can almost see that while she's hearing the song and as time goes by that Sam's playing that her eyes are watered just enough where she's on the edge of crying, remembering whatever. We don't even know she's remembering yet, but she's on the verge of crying. And then, bang, she sees Rick and Rick sees her. And it's just, like I said, it's an emotional sort of a thing. And for me, being the Bogart guy, when I watched it for the first time and, and since, it's it's just such a speechless character shift that is so uncharacteristic from the, the tough guy persona we've been introduced to in this film and we've seen in his career before this moment. So um, the film, what I love then going on is that the film doesn't tell you the real history right away. It lets that moment make you think, well, gosh, what the heck happened between these two? And and for me, like any horror movie or any thriller, there's more value in the suggested and implied than there ever is in the explicit. And until we have our flashback scene, we're left with this, this hanging fog of the room of what is going on between these two. What happened? How do they know each other? What's this? What's that? And all of those questions just fill those butterflies in our stomach and the antsiness of our of our of excitement where that smoky fog of assumed pearl just hangs there so well from that moment on i don't know it, it it's it's a dynamite scene and the payoff of the patience necessary to follow it from there is completely worth it because we, we get into flashbacks we get into a love story and then how it all turns out but it starts with that with just that bang of a moment and i love it I think that that's a very worthy choice. <laughs> we could probably pick quite a few different moments in this film and speak almost as passionately about them all. Mine actually comes directly after your scene, so the tie-in is very direct. I uh, Part of the reason I chose this is because of that Bogart persona that you were talking about, him going from that macho, always-in-control, powerful character to someone that is just completely broken and disheveled and no longer um, capable of handling his emotions that he has clearly bottled up for a very long time. And maybe this happened partially because I was watching this on Valentine's Day and I've got my own personal history of relationship issues to work through. Um, but when he is sitting there drinking in the dark after Ilsa has left, I go back to that lighting. It's completely almost encompassing of him you can barely see him and he stands out only because of his white suit and there's this spotlight that is kind of sh going back and forth from the outside um, again kind of contributing to that mystique and that world building of what Casablanca was like at the time what's going on and the, the spotlight moves across the scene and Sam walks in and he asks if Rick is going to bed and he says no, and Sam says, well, I ain't sleepy either. And he proceeds to try and talk Rick out of waiting for Ilsa. And eventually, he sits down to just play. And I think that one of the things for me that this scene does really well is it shows that friendship between Rick and Sam, which I didn't even really notice the first couple of viewings. I really saw it much more of a, you know, he's an employee of Rick. But this scene tells you there's so much more and it gives more weight to the moments when we see Rick deny selling Sam essentially to his competitor. And he calls him boss repeatedly over and over and over. Yet we see that friendship. So he's got this respect for Rick and everything about 
Bogart's performance here for me, it just, it captures that feeling of lost love when you're trying to forget, you're trying to move past it, and you just can't. All the way down to when he angrily pounds his fist on the table. He wipes his brow and shakes his head and he says that, you know, iconic line of all the gin joints and all the towns in the world. She walks into mine. And it's right after that, he asks Sam what he's playing. And Sam says, oh, just a little something I made up. He says, oh, stop it. You know what I want to hear. You played it for her. You can play it for me. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. And he, he allows himself to go back to that moment. He allows himself to feel again those emotions that he clearly has been putting away and trying to forget and fighting back. And so everything about this scene just resonates with me so strongly um, in my personal life that I can't help but really be overcome by it. I mean, I, I, I cry, I get, I get very emotionally raw in this moment every single time. So it's, it's the acting, that friendship, the emotion of, of Rick, the lighting of the scene. And, and of course, it just fades into that montage of his happy memories and, and tells us the story going from there. It's, it's absolutely perfect for me. It defines the film. Man, great choice, Aaron. Good stuff. Josh, what do you got as your connecting point? Well, unfortunately, despite Aaron saying uh, how many countless scenes there are to choose from, I actually chose the exact same scene as Aaron. Um, oh, oh, look at that. But, <laughs> but um, what is cool to point out is I have kind of a different spin on it. And that's, you know, going back to what you said about if God, God forbid if this movie was ever remade, because when you have a movie like this, God forbid saying the M word masterpiece, um, where, where you can, you have the ability to interpret scenes differently and, and subjectively and what it means to you because it's about the feeling and not beating you over the head with whatever. Um, so it's the same scene. It's, it's Rick sitting there, um, and for me, it's, it's kind of funny. It's my connecting point is really, it's a, it's a negative thing. This is not a, a positive experience, but it's one that I really resonate with or, or resonates with me. And that is the, I view this scene, you know, and Sam trying to convince him to go home and him dragging, dragging him through it, sitting there drinking with him and then making him play that song. Uh, and what he's doing is this bizarre human impulse to indulge in the most heartbreaking, just pouring yourself into this this place. And I'm not talking about when you get to the point of a breakup where you're, all right, you know, I want to process this. I want to think through it. No, no, no. This is in the dark times when you are – it is not a healthy thing. You're not processing it. You're not moving past. You are just pouring yourself in – into the, the misery of it, the deepest depths of, of that, that feeling. And you're sitting there and you're drinking a bourbon and you're looking at those old pictures. You're listening to old messages, our songs, whatever it is that, that does that thing for you being in that place of a, of a heartbreak, I think is a very, very strange human behavior that I know I've indulged in numerous times. And, I haven't for quite a while. I haven't really been in this situation, um, but I had been a lot more when I first started to connect with this movie. So in addition to just the impact of the movie, I also kind of have a nostalgia to a time when, as my slightly more uh, idealistic, romantic, younger self could get so caught up in things, whereas now my guard's up a little bit more. I'm a little bit 
more reserved about my my interactions with the with the opposite sex and I don't tend to go as head over heels and watching Sam uh, I'm sorry watching Rick as he's talking with Sam and making him play that song and throwing himself into that pit um, just to feel it again even if it's awful is uh, it's a weird thing but I, I I connect with it let me ask kind of a, an extending thing here since you two both had the same connecting scene to for me I'm right there with you this is one of the one of the most amazing raw scenes of 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 expressed heartbreak I've ever seen in film I'm wondering and I might be putting you on the spot but um have you guys ever seen a scene similar to that in another film that anywhere close to that resonance that resonance where you know um that sorry place where I obviously there's probably films that are darker and weirder about doing it. But have you seen one where have you ever seen a similar scene that hits you like this in another film? I'm going to process that for a minute. Aaron, do you have anything quick to respond? I have oh, one. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I, I have one if you need it, Aaron. One, you don't get to. Okay. Uh, I have one if you need you know, to process. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Well, for me, for me, um, uh, and like, and I, I'm I'm a divorcee. I'm in my second marriage. Uh, uh, the one film I've seen that I can remember that got close to this, where you're watching melancholy personified, was her, and watching Joaquin Phoenix, where you realize all the different ways he's trying to figure himself out all movie, and it's all this technology and it's all the Scarlett Johansson stuff, and 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 you you strip all that stuff that's in there in her away, and that movie boils down to a man just trying to get over a divorce and the the things he remembers and the things he still sees and, and what he can't shake. And like, it might not be as dialogue driven as a scene, like what we're talking about with Bogart, where of all the gin joints and, and if you can play it, I, if she, she can stand it, I can, it's nothing as, as overt as that, but her is the closest one I can think of. There's, there's probably a scene like that in the before trilogy and I'm trying to place exactly which one I would go to. Um, but there's, there's a fight in particular in a hotel room, uh, in before midnight, I believe, uh, in the final film it happens right before they end up outside of the cafe together. And then you have the, the final moments of the film. And so there's a, there's a moment in that one that I think hits me so hard because of the way that they are reacting it's it's so real to me um that they can't handle their emotions and there's a lack of honesty in that scene that i'm very familiar with um and so i guess i think that one hits me pretty hard but just for thinking of things that are characters in movies that are wallowing in that self pity in many ways um, is what Josh is getting at, you know, just to remember those times and, and purposefully put themselves through the ringer. I can't remember one that jumps out at me the way that this one does. I a little bit of a lighthearted take, but I, uh, a movie I really love is uh, high fidelity and there's a it's not exactly the same but there's there's a part where you know if you've seen the movie John Cusack's the lead he goes through a breakup at the very beginning of the movie the movie constantly breaks the fourth wall and basically him recounting his previous breakups and basically trying to argue why this current breakup wouldn't even make his top 5 list and there's a moment when he he finds out that his recent ex is already involved with another man played by Tim Robbins, uh, who is a, a former neighbor. And 
he goes from kind of this, you know, recounting all these former lovers, telling these stories as he goes about his life to just getting rocked by the reality of of this current breakup, bringing him right back to actually how bad it's hurting him and and how much it is affecting him. Um, so it's it's a very different perspective, but that's another movie that uh, that I really love the take on relationships from. Good choices, fellas. I had to put you on the spot. Nice work, fellas. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, don't do that again. Okay, so speaking of taking things away, let's go ahead then, and we also like to talk about our lessons, right? Don, this is what you do on Every Movie Has a Lesson, and of course, you had a, a retro review, vintage review, I think is what you called it, of Casablanca that you did a few years ago, and I'm not going to lie, I will, I will just say straight up, I am plagiarizing the crap out of Don's review because he writes really well and his lessons for this movie are spot on. So I'm stealing this just straight from him. Basically, it boils down to this idea of old flames still burning, um, which for me is a big deal. Uh, it's, it's something that, that I still deal with every day of my life. I'm you know a single guy at this point and I am not I'm twice divorced. So I've got plenty of that nice uh, charred, burned down history it's no matter the circumstances don that you talk about you say from the extremes of death and divorce or the divisive separation of geography or a tough breakup we never forget our past loves and i completely agree with that they always have a flame inside of us if the split was on good terms that flame warms and comforts but the opposite causes a flame that scars from bitterness remorse or a lesson learned and when old flames come back into your life, you can't help but break character, become vulnerable, and stir up both those positive and negative emotions. And so I think for me, the CP that we talked about, Josh and I, those feelings become largely debilitating, even if it's only a brief moment. And it's really what we do with these feelings that is important. And that's what the ending of this film shows me is that we can remember and let it control us, or we can use it as fuel to remember those things and then become better for it. And so that's really what I take out of this as something that I can move forward in my life and not let it drag me down quite to the depths that we see it drag Bogart down in this movie. And it's really interesting kind of in a meta way because I have to practice what I preach while watching this specific film. Well done, sir. I will accept plagiarism like that every time. Well, well done. Uh, for me, I, I did five, um, this on this vintage review. I did. I try to keep my life less or my life lessons that I get out of films down like around three when I do a typical film. I did five for this one, so I had a lot to choose from. Um, I kind of went to uh, the, uh, one of them that I that I just enjoy because I'm not I'm not a music you know, a uh, geek or any kind of way. I'm, I'm a film music geek for sure, but I'm not a, a top 40 listener or I don't have mixtapes and things like that. Well, I guess when I was a teenager, I had all that, but um, the life lesson that I'm going to kind of ping for this is um, one that I wrote called the power of a song for this film. As time goes by is so inescapable as a, as a, as a thematic piece to the mystique of this film and, and the power of this film where 
you know, not only is this kind of um, a reclaimed old song from the play that still makes it years later into this film, where it's almost like an oldie that's been rediscovered. Max Steiner, the composer, weaves its, you know, its cues into the score. And so that poignancy keeps showing up in different chords and cues along the film. And, and I and I love that, that 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 a song can hang around like that, because I admit um, in any past love of mine, I, I, I identify him with the song. I'm not quite to a John Cusack level per se, but close where, you know, there's a list for me. It's Keeper of the Stars by Tracy Bird for one person. It's More Than Words by Extreme for another person. It's My Wedding Song with My Wife. Um, Right now, it's it's Fallen to Me by Sugarland. So when I say the, the language I put to my lesson that I wrote in my review is this. I say, I guarantee every single one of us reading this review or watching Casablanca has a song, maybe even more than one that evokes an extremely poignant memory, either happy or sad. We know every word and every chord of that song. It freezes us in place. It haunts our moods, and it hits us like a ton of bricks when we hear it. The classic As Time, Go- As Time Goes By in the 1940s was, like I said, a forgotten little gem that showed up, in, and it just was used in such a perfect degree in Casablanca. And every time I watch a film that has a moment where a song defines a romance, it could be... I mean, we just saw The Shape of Water use a great song, um, you know, I Know Why and So Do You and things like that, where I love a moment where a song punctuates a scene. So plenty of the great movie scenes since have had great background songs, and very few of them have had them living and breathing as part of a poignant moment. So I, for what Casablanca did for a little song, if that doesn't work the way it works in Casablanca, we don't have John Cusack holding up a boombox with Peter Gabriel and say anything. We don't have All Lang Syne with Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal and When Harry Met Sally. All those classic movie moments that we associate with a song comes from a place of power that was demonstrated in Casablanca. And all of us, I love it, that all of us likely have a song that just we hear it and it freezes us. And yeah, power of a song is my life lesson and takeaway. Well, it's pretty cool. I think both of ours have connected. So our connecting point and takeaways lessons are kind of the same scene, Don. So Josh, you're on the spot now. Is your is your lesson going to connect to your connecting point? He's got a good one. I know he's got something good. <laughs> oh, no pressure. Um, it's it's actually not exactly. It, it's going to connect in the sense that it's also kind of a weird semi dark perspective i guess um it's but... also in casablanca <laughs> <laughs> yes of course that's about as close as it gets that too um so awesome points both you guys and i would just say uh if you've never checked out uh don's website uh awesome awesome article um or write-up on this on this um movie and uh on many others you're a great writer and it's awesome the way you highlight those points um, but for me, my my takeaway point, my lesson here was that some of the best things in life are those that you just just get a touch of that are left ultimately unfulfilled. Um, I think the the common way, if you look at this movie, it's that you know this character Rick, um, he had this experience, he becomes jaded. He's in a situation. He grows. He corrects that. He makes a sacrifice. He does the right thing. He becomes the better person again. I, it's really not that simple. Um, yes, Rick makes a sacrifice here. He he chooses to send Ilsa off with Laszlo, whether out of respect for their relationship, for Laszlo, for the cause that he's on, and he gives up his, his cafe, and he goes off and, you know, 
we're led to believe probably gets involved in some anti-German uh, occupying kind of activities, um, such as he did in the past. But this is not the same Rick we saw before. This is this is a it is an evolution. It's a change, but it's not the same thing. Um, this is not the bright-eyed Rick before. It's a sacrifice, but ultimately it's also a realization that what he had was Ilsa, with Ilsa isn't what he wants it to be. Uh, this fleeting, beautiful moment, yes, Ilsa has this passion for him, has a true love, but he's 100% right when he says, you know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually and for the rest of your life, you'll regret it. So he's going to be sidled with this with this burden um, that's going to eventually fade. Some of these, this, this romance that they had will never match that whatever it is, weekend, week, month, it's kind of left unclear. However much time they had in Paris, they will never match that again. And in a way, if all you care about is that the memory of that that relationship, you know, maybe it's luck that that she does have this thing with Laszlo and he'll never have to spend six months, a year, two years living together and realizing, yeah, you're never going to have that. This thing that you've made perfect in your mind, you're never going to re-attain that. And it's not to say you can go through that perspective in life and uh, have a lot of very fleeting experiences. That's not what I mean. It's, it's just that sometimes that touch, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a story, a, a great book that, that they don't make into a series, a great movie or TV show, they don't make a sequel, something that's left with a little bit of ambiguity, a standalone experience, the the one time you get to do or try something that means the most without dragging it over and back, a, a total funny little aside, I, I only had a Cuban cigar once. It was the day I was leaving Afghanistan from my first deployment. My uh, platoon sergeant broke him out. My four squad leaders, my platoon sergeant, and I sat. All our Marines had already left. We smoked a Cuban cigar an hour before the helo came to pick us up. And we sat there and basically silent smoked the cigar and just thought about everything that happened. And then we left. I never want to have another Cuban cigar for the rest of my life because that's my Cuban cigar moment. That's what a Cuban cigar means to me. And this, this, you know, it's a strange corollary, but this thing that Rick has with Ilsa, that that passionate, amazing experience, was never, never going to be reattained. And the person he is now, and and who she is with with Laszlo, would never allow that to come back. So he doesn't go back to being a good person. He evolves into the next step in his life, but ultimately will always have Paris. And he doesn't ruin that. He retains that that taste of this amazing thing that can stay as a bubble in his mind. I mean, that's as close to a mic drop, I think, as we might have ever had on this podcast. He, <laughs> so, he, he had it, so, man. Had it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to let us in with that, John, uh, Don, John, John, Don, Josh. Wow. Uh, unless Don, do you have any closing thoughts? No. Um, thank you for the high compliments on the writing. Yeah, I can't follow a mic drop like that. Um, folks, if you've never seen the film, go see it. It, it find it, rent it, borrow it, library. Stop, stop whatever you're doing and see this film. It's so darn good. Cosine. I think we we all agree there. 
All right, Josh, that was that was an awesome way to end this for sure. Um, I completely agree with you. So where can people find more of your stuff out there in the podcast world? I know I mentioned it briefly, but you can tell people a little more about it. Yeah. Um, if you look up in your podcast app, uh, just look up LSG Media, LSG Media. Uh, there's a variety of podcasts. I'm I'm like the B team. Uh, it is my uh, the main host, Dean. It is his baby. Uh, but I have a blast being on the main ones called Science Fiction Film Podcast. Don't just cover science fiction. Um, there's a number of uh, other TV shows uh, that we cover and other things like that. Uh, like Feeling Film, there's an awesome uh, community online, uh, mainly around Facebook. Uh, it's really, really great interactions. And I will warn you, as as mentioned by Aaron, it is extremely adult in content. We just, if you're offended by essentially anything, it might not be the, <laughs> the right thing for you. But it's at times funny, at times insightful. Uh, but I think it, at at its essence, at its heart, it's the same kind of take as as you have Aaron and Don on here and also on the main, um, the regular Feeling Film broadcast with Patch. Uh, we just like movies. We like talking about them. We're not there to pick them apart. Um, we do it in our own own way. But ultimately, it's, a, it's about digging movies and liking to talk about it and having fun. So uh, that's it. Yeah, LSJ Media. I'm on there as Josh F-N-G, E-F-F-E-N-G-E-E. But generally only interact with people on the uh, on those websites or on the Feeling Film one. Sweet. Don, what about you? Where can people find your stuff? Uh, search whatever social media avenue you want to do with Every Movie Has a Lesson. You'll find me between Twitter, Facebook, or Medium or otherwise. Um, everymoviehaslesson.com is the website with reviews and all that. And uh, um, as, as usual, I've been slipping this year so far, but um, please keep an eye on uh, Feeling Film as well, where I have the weekly column of uh, what we learned this week, where I kind of put the as snarky as I'm ever going to get with just reacting to Hollywood news with life lessons in mind, because that's kind of the the way I roll too much. So um, more than anything, that's where you can find me. And, and I still, and I can't wait. This work is awesome. So, yeah, I, I agree. I'm so glad that you guys have stuff out there that exists. It's been a big influence on me and uh, the creation of this podcast. So a big thank you both for that and for being on for this episode. I'm so glad it's, it's, it's kind of a, a hard thing sometimes to cover a film like this that you love so much because you're a little bit nervous and you want to do it justice. You don't want to leave something out or not, say something in the right way because it's a little more important. So I think we've done a good job of that. I'm excited to see what our listeners come up with uh, in the Facebook group when we read their reviews and hear their comments. Please don't forget to do that, listeners. Uh, get yourself in that drawing for podcast swag and hopefully some other cool gifts at the end of the year. If you want to connect with me further, you can do that all over social media at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, and also tweeting from the Feelin' Film Twitter account, and then, of course, that amazing Feelin' Film Facebook group, which you can find in the show notes linked, um, or you can also find it by searching on Facebook. You'll also find notes in the show notes, links to the LSG Media Science Fiction Film Podcast and Don's website, Every Movie Has a Lesson. Thank you for listening. As always, it's been a lot of fun. And remember, stay positive. And keep connecting with classics. Classics.